Amen. All right, we can go home now. Well, again, I'm, I'm excited to be here with you to talk to you today uh, about God's heart for the church. We have, and when I say we, I, I mean all of us, because even though I've been the one at the meetings, you're a part of the story about what God is doing in our city and uh, some really amazing things that have begun to happen over the last year as pastors and ministers of various churches in our city have been coming together each month to encourage each other, pray together, uh, discuss the Word of God together, and ask God, what is His will for this city? What does He want to accomplish? What do we need to do as the church in Clio, not the churches of Clio, but the church, singular, of Clio to work together to bring about the kingdom of God in this place. And it's just been amazing to see kind of what's been happening over the course of the last year. And next week, again, we'll be joining with nine, at least nine churches. There might be more that come, but there are nine representative churches in our Clio Ministerial Association that are going to join together to worship, to pray, to hear from the other pastors about what God's been doing and why it's important to come together, to unite, to work together, and just cast vision for what God has put on our hearts for the city, to kind of help open the eyes of all the people in all of our churches about the bigger story that we've all been called into. And it's just been amazing. And uh, our worship team that's going to be involved is a worship team comprised of four different churches and people uh, coming together. Tony's going to be a part of that worship team, so you know it's going to be good, you know. But uh, And then uh, I was humbled to uh, have been asked by the other pastors to speak at the, uh, at the conference. So um, if anything, be praying for me that I don't mess it up and everyone hates each other when it's over, you know. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, uh, just be praying because God is using us, little old us, to make a big impact among the churches that have been here around much longer than, than we have. So praise God for that. And uh, so to set up next week, and I encourage you, don't use next week as a week to skip church. We're still having church. It's just not in this building. Unless it rains, then it will be in this building, and everything will be normal. But it's going to be a, a monumental thing. In church history, when groups came together, it was not inconsequential. Things like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and some of the traditional and orthodox historical foundational elements of the church have been produced when people of God came together for events like this. And it's our dream that this event isn't just a one-time event in the, the history of Clio, but this becomes an occurring thing that becomes Clio's thing. You know, there are a lot of cities in the surrounding areas that have a festival, you got blueberries, you got cherries, you got potatoes. I don't know, you pick a food. There's probably some city around that has a whole festival surrounding this area. Well, we would like, and the pastors of this city would like Clio's festival to be centered around Jesus Christ. That we could see this city become known for and that it would draw people from all sorts of places and areas to come be a part of a faith fest. 
that highlights Jesus Christ. I mean, what awesome thing would that be? So this is not inconsequential, and you're invited at the beginning grassroots, the open door to what God is doing through our city. And so I want to talk and kind of set up today in preparation for what is to come and talk about what God's heart is for the church. Now, you might just know this as common uh, common knowledge, but when you get to the end of your life, or if you've known someone that has recently passed away, you know that when someone is at the end of their life, the things they talk about, especially when they're on their deathbed, the things they talk about are the things that are most important to them. They don't really waste time talk, shooting the breeze and talking about frivolous things. When, when they're getting ready to pass from life into eternity, the things they speak about, if they can muster the strength, are things of the utmost importance. I mean, what would you think if, if you're there next to your loved one, say it's a, it's a mother or father or grandfather, and they're on their deathbed, they're grasping for breath, and they, they say, son or daughter, c- come close. And, and, and in that moment when they're saying that, you know, okay, this is going to be something that's going to mark me for the rest of my life. And so you lean in to hear what they have to say, and they say, did McDonald's hit a trillion burgers sold, or are they still in the billions? You would be like, what? What? Or, or maybe, did bell bottoms come back in style because I know that stuff happens? You'd be like, what? What is going on here? You know, like this is supposed to be, you're supposed to say, I love you. You are my favorite. No, no. What, McDonald's? What, come on. We would think that would be ridiculous. Right? When you're at the end of your life, when you know it is eminent, what is most important to you is going to be what's on your mind. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. And this happens just before he is arrested, put on trial, and crucified. He knows his time is short. And so he begins to pray, and his prayer is recorded for us. And you know, because he is God, he knows what's coming. He's been telling his disciples for a year now, this is going to happen. They've come to Jerusalem so that it can happen. You know that this is a prayer that is the ache of his heart. And as he's crying out to God, this is recorded for us so that we would know what was of utmost importance, what was on Jesus' mind just before his death. And we're going to read in John chapter 17. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. If not, the verses will be on the screen as well. It should be on the YouVersion Bible app. But in John 17, beginning in verse 20, here's what Jesus says. He says, I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. Think about this for a minute. Jesus has spent three years with these 12 disciples, and he's praying to God for these disciples, but not just them alone. He's praying for everyone else who would come after them that would believe, which means if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus, before his death, was praying for you. You were on his mind. You were on his heart. The most important thing that he had in mind was you, and it was me. And he goes on to say in verse 21, 
I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one, and I am in them, and you are in me. So may they, they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me, and that you love them as much as you love me me. Heavenly Father, God, we just ask you in this place to open our hearts, our minds, and our ears, that we would receive the word that you declare for us today. God, that it would give us perspective. God, that it would align our hearts with yours, that it would give us a vision for the church, not just this church, but your church, a vision for this city in a greater way than maybe we had before we walked in this place. God, we just thank you for the life-giving message that is in the Scripture and how it brings us to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We just praise you, God, for what you're doing even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Two things Jesus prays for in this passage. There's so much to unpack here. We're going to look at some of it. But just in these couple of verses, there's two main things that Jesus Jesus prays for. Number one is perfect unity. That they, meaning us, believers, would experience unity. That we would be one together. And not just one, but that we'd have the same unity that Jesus experienced with the Father. They are, we know, understand God as the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are completely perfect, lacking nothing. They are completely in sync They are of one mind, of one heart. And as we look at the unity that Jesus had with the Father, that is what he is praying that we would experience together with one another. In John 17, 23, he says, I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity. Somebody say perfect unity. Perfect unity without division. That they may experience... This perfect unity. This was on the heart of God. Unity in the church, not just the local church, but the church at large is was on the heart of Christ. This was a big deal to Jesus. There was a purpose and a reason why he had a heart for unity. But the problem with us being finite human beings, we're we're broken, none of us are perfect is that we get things wrong from time to time. And if you look at the course of church history, and if you've grown up in church or been around uh, any different types or styles of churches, you'll recognize that we mistake unity for uniformity. And we believe somehow that we can't be unified with someone else unless they are exactly like us. And so you go from city to city, you'll see... Different types of churches, different styles of churches. And what's happening is we've decided to organize based on how we are uniquely different from other people. Rather than coming together, we divide ourselves to keep ourselves comfortable. It's not a comfortable thing to be unified with someone who is not identical or in uniform with you. But God didn't call us to uniformity. He called us to unity. That we'd be one together. And we can see this with Jesus Christ. Jesus is one with the Father. He is God. Philippians 2 says he's equal with God in every way. He is God. John 1 says in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and was God. Jesus is just as much God as the Father is God. But in Matthew 26, 39, we read this. 
As Jesus was praying in another account, it says, He went on a little farther, bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. In John 6, 38, Jesus said at another time, For I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me, not to do my own will. Now, the significance of these passages as it pertains to unity between the Father and the Son is we can see here that Jesus is his own person, right? Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. But within the Godhead, within the Trinity, you have three uniquely unique persons. God, the Father, has his will. The Son has his own will. The Father has his own mind. The Son has his own mind. And here Jesus is saying, I didn't come to earth to do what I want. I came to do what the Father wanted. And the reason why this is beautiful is because even though Jesus had his own mind and his own will, he willingly submitted his own mind and his own will to be subservient or in submission to the will of the Father. He lowered himself. He didn't think of himself as, as anything to be uh, worshipped or adored. He humbled himself into the form of a servant, gave his life even to the death of the cross because even though he was equal with God, he didn't cling to his rights and his privileges. He submitted that will to the Father. We can read this in Acts or Philippians chapter 2. And the reason why Jesus did that or was able to do that is because he recognized that the will of the Father was the supreme good. You don't get better than the will of God. You don't get better than the will of the Father. Anything else other than the will of God is, does not bring goodness, does not bring wholeness. The only way to bring good out of evil, to restore what is broken, is to submit to the Father. So Jesus willingly submits his own will, his own mind, into the will of the Father. In this prayer, Jesus showed that unity doesn't have to mean uniformity. They can have different ideas. I'm sure in that moment as he's praying to the Father, he's saying, Look, I know what suffering I'm about to endure. I'm not sure I really want to go through with that. But I know and I trust you. I trust you enough to know that if this is the only way, then that's what needs to be done. And he submitted himself to do that. And the question is, how was he able to submit himself? How was he able to have unity even among diversity, among different ideas or desires? It's because what ties people together that are not uniform but that are united is not perfect unity but perfect love. Without perfect love, you cannot have perfect unity. When there is perfect love, there will be perfect trust. And Jesus not only experienced, but he understood that God's love was so perfect that the only end that there could be for the result of this move of God to send him to be the sacrifice of the world would be the greatest good that could possibly happen. And as we see, as Jesus rises from the dead, not only is he given a name which is above every other name, but he's seated at the right hand of power. All things have been placed under his authority. He has rescued his bride and one day will be reunited with him. And he'll finally have what he's always desired, and that is an eternal, perfected relationship with his people. When we are in submission to the Father's will, God has a way of raising dead things to life. James says if we humble ourselves before God, at the right time, he will lift us up. 
As we see perfect unity modeled between the Father and the Son and how that's bathed in and held together by perfect love, we can look and apply that to how we work with other people that are different than us in our local church or even in other churches that might not be the same as the way we are. We can have different ideas about what could be or should be done, but at the end of the day, if we want perfect unity... We have to trust the authority that is over us, which is Jesus, his word. We need to walk in love, the love of the Father, and be gracious to one another. As Jesus demonstrated, we need to submit ourselves one to another, esteem each other as better than ourselves in order to remove any opportunity for division and strife to infiltrate the unity of God's people. We should be able to have a disagreement and still be unified. Because we're actually working for the same purpose, the same thing that God has called us to do. Jesus prayed that we'd be unified as they are unified. Not only did Jesus want us to experience perfect unity with God and with one another, but number two, he wanted us to know what the Father's heart was for us, to experience the Father's heart. John 17, 23 says, I'm in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that, the, that you love them as much as you love me. Now, I want to camp here for just a minute because this statement is extremely profound. You think about the perfection of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They lack nothing. They're completely uh, in sync together. The Bible says God isn't just loving. He is love. He defines love. Like, we wouldn't know love without knowing God. He is the very definition of what love is. There is no lack or break in or any type of negative aspect to the love of God. It is perfect. It is completely perfect. Jesus says, and if we think about the Father's love for the Son, Jesus says here that you love them, that's you, just as much as you love me. Did you know that the Father loves you just as much as he loves his Son? Many of the difficulties we experience, the reason why offense and strife and discord is so readily easy to hold on to, why fear is such a permeating uh, spirit in the church, is because we're operating under an orphan spirit that feels rejected by our Heavenly Father. But the Father loves you. He desires you. He's proud of you. He wants you. He accepts you. He's drawing close to you. He's calling out to you. And everything he sent Jesus to do was to reestablish relationship with you. The Father loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. He loves you immensely. What exchanges an orphan spirit and that sense of feeling of being worthless or no good is the spirit of adoption where we recognize our purpose, our identity, everything we are and am flow through that understanding that we are the children of God and his love is what defines us, not what the world may say. When we know what the Father's heart is for us, the reason why Jesus could do what he did, how he could stand before Pilate, how he could stand before the mobs and be accused and say nothing, say not a word. 
He didn't have to defend himself. He didn't get defensive. He didn't say, oh, well, let me prove it to you. He didn't get proud or boastful. It's because he was so rooted in the Father's love that nothing anyone said against him could affect him because he knew what the truth was. God wants us to experience his heart, to know his heart, to know his love, so that our identity would be so rooted in him that it wouldn't matter what the world may say. It wouldn't matter what your boss at work would say. It wouldn't matter what your spouse would say or what your uh, wayward child would say. All that matters is what God says about you. Think of the confidence that comes with a person who finds their identity completely in the Father's heart. They could say, my will is not important, but your will be done. I can willingly lay my life down because my security is not in my success. It's in the praise of the Almighty. God wants us to feel and experience the Father's heart to recognize that 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 is what is going to bring healing and redemption into our lives. Redemption is not just for the salvation of our souls so we can get to heaven. Redemption is for broken relationships, broken finances, broken reputations. And the pathway to redemption is simply submitting yourself to the will of the Father, recognizing His heart for you and believing what He says about you is true, conversely, of how you might feel or what others may have said. But the reality is, and for us, and the reason why there's a difficulty in having unity in the body of Christ is for our just our basic human experience is that it's hard to submit to someone that you don't necessarily trust. If you think about human relationships, it's hard to submit to somebody that you don't trust has your best intention at heart, and that plays to your relationship with the Heavenly Father. If you don't trust God's will for you, if you don't trust that His purpose and plan for your life is good, that even though your circumstance may be difficult or it may not be fun for a while, ultimately He's going to work out everything for your good. For those who love God and are called according to his promises, if you don't trust his heart, it's hard to submit your life to his will. In John chapter 4, 1 John 4, 18, it says, Such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment, and that shows we've not fully experienced his perfect love. The reason why we walk in fear and why we allow uh, the world to influence our emotions, to influence our beliefs about ourselves, to allow different circumstances and situations to catch us off guard and to tear us down is because we're not holding to or walking in the reality of God's heart for us. And we're allowing fear and other influences to lead and to guide. And if we're afraid to submit our lives fully to God, it's because we really don't trust Him and we don't trust His heart for us. Because somewhere along the way, we've allowed either our source of pain or we've allowed a false belief that's been shared by the enemy that, that, that you know, God did this to you or He just wants to punish you or God's always mad at you or whatever the lies the enemy wants to spew and get us to believe that we've allowed these false beliefs to enter in and we don't trust God fully with our lives and with our heart. We can't accept or believe that he could really love us perfectly or accept us just as we are, be happy with us. And so we constantly walk in this state of fear. Oh no, if I do this, God might fill in the blank. And so we don't trust him 
with our lives the way Jesus trusted him. If we don't fully comprehend his love for us, we've not have a revelation of his heart. We might get it intellectually that God loves us, but it doesn't make its way to our heart that will redefine our lives. And this is what Jesus prayed for. Not just that we'd be one, that we'd be unified together, but that we would be engulfed in, overflowing in the Father's heart, that we would know God's heart for us, and that would open the doorway for his heart to flow through us into the lives of other people. That we would so walk in love that the barriers to experience the Father's heart would be removed, and we would all walk and live securely in and through the Father's love. If we're walking in the Father's love, it doesn't matter if we have a different idea of what color the carpet should be. It doesn't matter if we have a different idea of how many songs to sing or which songs are right or what style of music is right because we're walking in love together and we can work that out. It's when love is not in the picture that strife and division and discord begin to affect the unity of the church. These two things that Jesus prayed for are our unity and the knowledge of his heart. He, he prayed for these because he knew what kind of transformative effect it would have in our lives. And the power that it would unleash in the church to be a great light in the community. But not only these two things did he pray for, there are also two significant things. One has to be uh, accomplished to provide the opportunity for this prayer to be fulfilled. And the second is the effect that this prayer would have in the lives of the church, in the lives of people, or in, in the world. So we have these two things he prayed for, but then we also have two aspects or two uh, significant things that uh, had to be first accomplished and then would be the result. So the first thing that is significant that paves the way for us to experience unity and the Father's heart is what Jesus says in John 17, 22. He says, I have given them, that's the believers, the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. If Jesus hadn't given us the glory, then there's no way we could be one. So what did he do? He's praying for unity. He gave us what we needed in order to be one, and that is the glory. The word glory, we think about that most often when we're talking about praise and worship. You know, glory be to God, and we say things like that. Glory is usually translated as beauty and splendor, as uh, attractiveness, but if you think about what he's saying here, it doesn't really make sense to interpret this word in this way, right? Jesus didn't make the church glorious or beautiful so that we could be one, right? God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks at the heart, right? So it's not God that's trying to make the church beautiful on the outside. God didn't lead us to create these edifices of ornate beauty, these, these religious buildings that in cathedrals that are beautiful and ornate because you can go in them and find nothing but dead, cold religion on the inside. And there's no unity there. You could go to these mega churches that have the latest and greatest everything, but you walk in and the spirit's not right. It's not exterior beauty that he gave the church that leads to oneness. So what does this mean? What does this word glory mean? In the original language, this word glory is actually uh, comes from a word that means an opinion, an estimation, a perception, perception, or a primary point of view. So what Jesus gave the church so that we could become one is actually that we would see or the ability to see each other through God's lens. 
The glory is the ability to perceive, to see each other through the lens that God sees us. What difference would it make in your life if you looked at somebody through the lens of God's love the way he looks at you? It makes the mistakes and the bad days not so bad. It makes the things that we just get caught off guard and we begin to label that person as being mean or disrespectful not so easy to do because we have a heart for that person. Jesus didn't give the church external beauty for unity. He gave them his insight. You see, human beings are really the only creatures God created that can both be existing in, on earth and heaven at the same time. If you read Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, it talks about that once we became in Christ, we were seated with Jesus in the heavenly places, which means your body and your soul, your mind, will, and emotions are here on earth, but your spirit is seated with Jesus right now in heaven. You exist in two places simultaneously. And within that ability, you have a connection with God through the Holy Spirit that enables you not only to perceive and experience on earth, but to also be aware of and perceive heavenly things, to see from God's perspective. And it's easy to, to kind of identify when you're, which direction you're looking from, whether it's from earth up to heaven or heaven down to earth, because when you pray from earth to heaven, it's, God, I need, I need, I need, I want, I want, I want, please do, please do, please do, please do. But when you're watching from heaven and you're looking down to earth, you're seeing what God's doing and you're saying, oh God, what can I do to be a part of that? Oh, oh God, what can I give to be a part of that? that that's awesome over here. Let, let's, let's be a part of that. How much do I need to give over here? Or what can I lay down over here? Because you're seeing what God's doing and you're looking at your life through the lens of God's love and his heart for the world and for the church. It's a different perspective between looking from earth to heaven and heaven to earth. And Jesus gave us this ability to look at each other through the lens of heaven, looking down to earth so we can see each other not as we are, but as God created us to be. Most offenses within a church and even negative judgments from those outside of the church come because we're not looking at each other through the lens of God's eyes. Think about this. Jesus, when he was here, he commanded us to forgive without measure, right? 70 times 7. He's looking from heaven to earth. Why did he do that? Well, in Matthew 18, he tells us an unforgiving heart leads to spiritual oppression and bondage. Bitterness takes over and you become a person no one else wants to be around. You make everyone else miserable. Forgive without measure. We'll say, well, it's hard to forgive. It is hard sometimes, but if we choose not to forgive, what are we doing? We're giving ourselves over to the will of the enemy. And he uses us to bring pain and suffering in everybody else's life. So when you look from heaven to earth and you see through forgiveness, I actually paved the way for reconciliation and restored relationships where God can get glory, lives can be changed, and relationships can be restored. It paints a different picture. Jesus came to reveal the Father's heart to demonstrate why we should not only do, but how to do the very things that God has called us to do, to open blind eyes, even our eyes, and to open them up to a bigger story. The unity that Jesus prayed for becomes a reality when we view each other the way God views other people. Uh, the 
a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, we went to, uh, it's in March, I think, we went to the Man Up Conference, and um, we were sitting there uh, praising, worshiping. The band was playing. I don't even know what song they were playing, but we were there with a group of guys, and I was standing next to one of the guys from our church, and my attention was drawn to him. And uh, I don't really know the guy very well, but uh, my attention was drawn to him, and all of a sudden, in this moment, I just become overwhelmed with the Father's heart for him. And uh, I've been pursuing the prophetic gifts and the gifts of the Holy Spirit in my own life. And I was listening to a commentator who was talking about the gift of prophecy and some of the ways God works. And he was talking about how God will give you a glimpse of his heart for a person. And so I didn't really know that's what it was called, but I was experiencing it before I heard about that. But, um, and I've experienced it two ways. One, it's like God's love for somebody and another in God's broken heart for somebody. And both are radical experiences because in that moment, it's like an overwhelming sensation of this emotion for this person. I'm just looking at this guy and I feel like he's my son and I'm just so proud of him and just in awe of how much love that I have for this guy. And I recognize that it's not coming from me because I don't know the guy. It really, it's coming from God. And in that moment, as I'm like welling up with tears because of this just overwhelming sensation of love for him, I, I was able to just start talking and encouraging him. And the way that he was being touched was improved or dramatically impacted because of what was coming off of me. And he becomes a little emotional. And it was just an amazing moment that we were able to have in this conference. But God gives us these glimpses and enables us to see people through his eyes for that purpose, that his love would flow and that we would color each other through the lens of his love, not through our negative experiences. It's so easy for us to walk in this door, walk by somebody, who, and they don't say hi to us and be like, well, they didn't say hi to me. They're such and such. And we label them, and now we have something against them. And we just, every time we think of that person, we think about them as an unfriendly, unkind, blah, blah, blah. Rather than seeing them through the lens of God's eyes and saying, well, maybe because they were sharp with me today or maybe because they didn't say hi, they were going through something. And how can God use me to encourage and build them up so that their day can change? When we look through God's eyes, our perception of our lives, our experiences dramatically changes and it enables us to protect the unity in the church. One of the major killers of unity in the church is our tendency to view others in the flesh. When we become jealous about something they have or we're threatened by something they say, rather than looking at them through the lens of God's love. In John 13, 35, Jesus says something very important about his disciples. Read this with me. Is it on the screen? John 13, 35. Read this with me. It says, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Let's read it one more time. Your love... For one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. He did not say your theological ascent. He did not say your denomination. He did not say your church attendance. He did not say how many verses of the Bible you have memorized. He did not say if you can spell the books of the Bible. He did not say how many times you're involved or how many services you attended or any of the things we label or try to measure ourselves by about how great of a Christian we are. He didn't, he didn't label how many Bible studies you've been a part of. What he said is the love that you have for one another will prove to the world you are my disciple. Love is the hallmark characteristic. Jesus 
gives us the ability to look at one another through his eyes so that the love that he has for us can be evident in us and the world will know this person is a follower of Jesus Christ. This person is someone I can go to to find the hope and healing that I need in my life. Without that ability, without being given the glory or receiving the ability to perceive through God's eyes, to look through his lens, we have no hope for unity. Because we're broken people who will continually do something in some way to offend, to um, hurt. And, and if we're not willing to get over those things, to forgive, to pursue unity, to look at each other in God's eyes, then we have no hope for the unity that he prayed for. But when the church comes together and is unified, and not just our church, but the, the, the church at large, because there will be times where we might be fellowshipping with another church that does things a little differently or has different beliefs in a certain area, and it's easy if we're not looking at people through the lens of God's eyes to become offended or, or get upset about what they're doing or how they believe. If we're in unity with our church or the church at large, then there is a result that is of utmost importance. John 17, 21 Jesus says, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, the Father, and I am in you, and they may be in us so that, read this with me, so that the world, they may be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. This is the key. This is why God wants us to personally experience his love corporately experience his love, receive love, and give love. To have a supernatural unity amongst the diversity of believers, even as God is unified within the diversity of the Trinity for the ultimate purpose of evangelizing the entire world. Salvation is received by faith, but somewhere along the line we've come to think that faith has to be received without evidence. But the problem is, if we read the scripture, evidence is all over the Bible. The disciples saw Jesus do miracles. And after his resurrection, they put their hands in his hands and in his side. The apostle Paul saw Jesus, the resurrected Lord, on the road to Damascus. And even today, when the church prays, miracles happen. People are healed. People are set free. Miracles happen all the time. The Bible was left for our evidence. The Bible says that God's, the heavens declare the handiwork of God. God is not afraid of evidence. Evidence for the existence of God and the truth of Scripture are all around. But the greatest piece of evidence that Jesus left the world wasn't the sky. wasn't the Bible. It was a unified church. He said, when the church is one, it will be the evidence that the world needs to know that he came from the Father. A unified church gives credibility to the message of the church. We want people to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came, that he died, and that he rose again, and that through faith and trust in him, they can have eternal life and be restored to relationship with their Heavenly Father. Then we need a unified church. And we saw this in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. 
3,000 people come to Christ in one day, and the Bible says day after day, many were added to their number, those that were being saved. Why? Because the church was one, the presence of God was there, the Spirit was flowing, miracles were happening, and people were coming in droves to be a part of what God is doing. But somewhere around 300 A.D., the church began to take, at large, a different turn when it became a political entity in the Roman Catholic uh, era. And over the course of history since, there's been division, schism. There has been uh, even war between Protestants and Catholics. There have been people who have been crucified uh, or burned at the stake for just trying to translate the Bible into English. The church has been riddled with struggle and strife, and to say the least. And to date, amongst Christians, as of 2010, there are on record over 33,000 Christian denominations worldwide. 33,000. The enemy was able to get in and do a number on the unity of the church. And all of these denominations formed at some point when two people had a disagreement on how they viewed the Bible or they saw the world. And rather than walking together in love and working it out in love, they said, I can do it better than you. They split off, started their own group, and put a name on it and went that way. One of the greatest threats against the church, one of the easiest ways for Satan to attack it is disunity. And this is what's happening in the church at large. Statistics are out that show that even every denomination, doesn't matter what it is, is on the decline. Church attendance is down. Church commitment is down. The church is becoming irrelevant in people's lives. What used to be the norm as an active, regular attender in a church was two services over the course of a month. Now it's two services over the course of four to six weeks. People are attending church less and less. The church, according to Jesus, is supposed to be bankrupting hell. But from what I can see is that it's struggling worldwide to keep the doors even open. And this is why I believe we come to this point in our history, in this point in time where God is trying to breathe the wind of unity back into the church. In Ezekiel 37, as we were forming this ministerial association and God was putting it on my heart. I, I don't know why God put it on my heart. I'm the last person that I would have thought he would ask to do this. We were attending uh, these meetings in the city with all these different leaders, and each week or each month we would go, they would go around the table kind of reporting for everybody's group, and uh, they would get to the ministerial association, and they would say, you know, we used to have a ministerial association, but we don't really have that anymore. It'd be really nice if we got something like that going again. Well, maybe one day. And then they go around the list and go to the next person. The next month would be the same thing. We used to have a ministerial association. It would be really nice if we had that. And, and it was like month after month. It was like four months of this. And I, and I just felt in my spirit that God was saying, it's time to gather the churches back together. And I'm like, God, why me? Why, why, why are you putting this in my lap? Because like 10 years ago, I wouldn't have sat at the table with any of these people. I was one of those that thought I was right, everyone else was wrong, and so I'm just going to stay proud, you know, comfortable in my rightness. But nonetheless, he put that in my heart, and we began having conversations. And I, 
it was just amazing that as we sat at the table with these pastors and these leaders, just the presence of God and what God was doing. And I thought, man, God's doing something miraculous here in our city. And, and as we would meet and I would provide and do devotions for the group, God put Ezekiel 37 on my heart. And this is a passage where God gives Ezekiel this vision. He takes him out to this valley that's filled with dry bones. Bones are scattered around everywhere. It reminds me of the scene in The Lion King. Anybody go see The Lion King here recently? Hakuna Matata? Yep. I'm not going to lie. That was like my favorite childhood movie. I would listen to that on repeat. And I don't know who got me the soundtrack, but that was a mistake. And I'd be in my room blasting it. I think anytime the soundtrack for The Lion King comes on, my brother gets a tick. I don't know because uh, he just, I would just annoy him to all get out with that. But I love The Lion King. And the remake is, is great. I know it's got mixed reviews from some diehard fans, but I thought it was amazing. And uh, it rem- this vision of Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37 reminds me of when Simba goes to the elephant graveyard. It's dark. There's bones everywhere. It's not a happy place. And God takes Ezekiel there and has a conversation with Ezekiel. And he says, Ezekiel, look at the bones. And he asks him a question. He says, can these bones come alive again? And I know what Ezekiel's thinking. He's like, I ain't God. I don't know. You're God. You, you answer the question. Or he's like, how am I supposed to know if these bones could come back together? But how many of you know that when God asks you a question, he's not fishing for the answer? God already knows the answer. When God asks you a question, he's actually calling your heart into alignment with his. He's trying to open your eyes to see things from his perspective. God already knew that not only could the bones come back together, they're coming back together. He knew it. And so he told the prophet, prophesy to the bones. Speak to the body. And as he's prophesying to the bones, the bones come back together. The body comes back together. And before long, there is this exceedingly great army. So this valley of dry bones becomes the valley of the army of God. Resurrected. It's this powerful, powerful story. And, and as I was meditating over this, I was linking it to what God was doing in our city. Because in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul relates the church of Jesus to the body of Christ. And how we have these 33,000 Christian denominations. The, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and he said, The church has become like the valley of dry bones. It's scattered, it's dismembered, it's, it's divided, it's all over everywhere. And I'm thinking, oh God, forgive us for dismembering your bride on the whims of men. And he spoke to me and he said, can these bones come alive? And I pulled an Ezekiel and I said, well, only you know that. If they're like the way I was, ain't nobody getting together to have a little party that are from different denominations. But then he said, I'm raising my prophets to speak to the bones. And we got to see these people come together in our city. And as I'm seeing these different parts of the body come together, I then begin to hear that it's not just in Clio where it's happening. There was a conference that was happening in California, and I was listening to the head of World Vision, a, a, a hunger relief program, talk about how he's seeing and hearing from places all over the country where denominations are coming together that didn't associate together to work together in unity to advance the kingdom of God. And I thought, man, this thing's national. And then I had a conversation with our missionaries to Thailand. 
the Tongs who just made it back to the States, and hopefully they'll be here not too long to give us a report and to, and to hang out. I always love being with them. But we, we would uh, video chat with them just about every month just to hear, and I was sharing kind of what God was doing in our city, and they said, well, that's interesting because there was a Baptist and a Pentecostal work out here that were like arch enemies. They did not associate or talk, and now they're working together. So not only is it a local and a national movement, it's an international movement. The breath of God is drawing the bones together. And it's not just the bones, the parts that have to come. The, the, he had to prophesy over the sinews, the connective tissue, that it would hold the bones and the muscle together. And I believe that that symbolizes the relationships that need to be built to be strengthened before the power can return. And we're seeing how just coming to the table, the presence of God is coming. That now, rather than being at a table with a Methodist, a Catholic, a Baptist, in a church of Christ, I'm at the table with friends who just happen to attend a different church than I do. And we don't look at each other as a Catholic, a Baptist, or a Methodist. We look at each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. And my dream and my hope is, is that people, when you ask somebody, what religion are you, even though I hate it when people do that, but that's a common question, that people stop saying, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Baptist, I'm a Methodist. And people start saying, I'm a believer in Jesus, and I've been born again. It's not about the name on the door. If you make it about the name on the door, you'll miss the one you're supposed to adore. So the sinews, the connective tissue are coming. And out of that has come the muscle, the strength, because now we're beginning to do these food programs where we're collectively together passing out food every month in our community at a different church. And we're serving hundreds of hungry families. And, and it's beginning to make a difference in our community. And this event, City Revive, is starting to happen. We're seeing strength return to the body of Christ. And what's interesting is, is in this city specifically, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the church has not been looked on in a positive light in this city. There have been some churches that have been involved in legal issues in, in Clio. And so the public, even the, the government side, has not favored the churches. They've kind of resented and disliked the churches. But because of what God's been doing in our association, they're starting to not only appreciate the churches, they're starting to come to the leadership asking for help, seeking the church's input, wanting the church's participation, going from talking bad about the churches to talking well of the churches. And as the muscle comes together, then the skin forms. The skin is the attractive nature of the body. If you see a human body that's just covered in muscle and bone and, and, and veins and arteries, that's not very attractive. But when skin covers the body, now you have something that you can look at. And skin is starting to form, and the church is becoming attractive in our city again. And, and it's amazing to see this begin to form. But that's not the end. That's not what raises the army up. What raises the army up is the breath. And breath represents the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is breathed upon the churches, that's when we're going to see revival come to the city. Where the churches together stand up as one people, one group. And God has his way. We have, right now, this incredible opportunity to fulfill what Christ prayed for. Unity in the church. To experience the Father's heart. But even more so in his prayer that's labeled the Lord's Prayer, he says that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
we have this incredible opportunity to be a part of something special. And I pray that you pray, God, where's my part? What part do I play? Where's my place in this movement? Where's my position in the army? Because it's not just to come and sit in a chair on Sunday. It's to be active in the battle Monday through Saturday. It's to help revive the city, to advance the kingdom. And maybe he's calling some of you to get active in government or leadership. Maybe he's calling some of you to get active in the schools. Maybe to start a nonprofit. Maybe to get active in some of the nonprofits that are here that are in desperate need of help to kind of redirect and re-steer and bring it into agreement with the Word of God. God is calling us not just to exist here and worship here, but to be active, taking His presence into this community and unleashing it for His honor and His glory. And we get to partner with other churches who have the same heart so that we're not shouldering the burden of this on our own, but we're partnering with other believers in Christ to see God's kingdom come and the city revive. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, today, Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to be a part of this story. And Lord, I just pray for everyone here that their eyes would be opened and they would capture a vision for the kingdom of God in this city. And they they would see this city as not where their church meets, but they would see this city as their mission field. And that you would order their steps, you'd open their eyes to where in the city you want them to be involved. Maybe it's volunteering at the schools. Maybe it's being involved in uh, a business, starting a business here so that they can use their funds to uh, help fund programs and needs in the community. Whatever it is, God. I pray, Lord, that we'd be seeking your heart for this city. And God, I ask you right now in the name of Jesus that you would give us a glimpse of your heart for everyone here at Vertical Life Church. That maybe there's some things that have happened in the past between people that have just been swept under the rug, but it's been remained as a bone of contention in their relationship, God. An open door for the enemy to bring division I pray, Lord, that you'd give them a glimpse of your heart. That they would release the offense through forgiveness. And that you'd restore a relationship. So that unity can be known in this church. God, everyone here is important, valued, necessary. And we pray for those that are not in attendance with us today, God, that even now your presence would be just covering them and drawing them close. And Lord, we pray for all the needs that are here today, God, that you would raise us up through healing and wholeness. And God, as we close our time together out with a song, I pray, Father, that your presence would just unite and knit our hearts together. Weave it tightly as we sing your praise. And when we gather next week, I pray, God, that we would stand as shining beacons among brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for every opportunity, every miracle, every testimony. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.